Well, perhaps you're like me and found uh, yesterday to be a very difficult day as we look back on 20 years and remembered uh, the day on which uh, our country was attacked, September 11th, 2001. Uh, perhaps you, like me, uh, spent time looking through the pictures uh, that were posted in various places. Um, uh, perhaps you uh, were like me and you still find yourself tearing up as you read about uh, people like Todd Beamer, who is on the plane, makes the call at home, a couple of children and one on the way, unable to get his wife on the phone and yet has the opportunity to talk with a, a representative. And uh, right there over the phone, and his final moments has the opportunity to pray the Lord's Prayer with a fellow believer. It was a tough day, but perhaps you're also like me and you take encouragement every time you read or perhaps watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and you remember the final battle in The Return of the King, and you remember Frodo and Sam on their mission to mount doom, to destroy the ring. And you remember that really difficult pilgrimage, and you remember the mission accomplished, and you remember Sam wakes up from his sleep, and he's surprised to even be alive, and he's surprised to meet face-to-face, -face, see once again Gandalf the great wizard. And Sam asks that question, is everything sad going to come untrue? What a great question. And this evening, our text gives window into the very important answer to that very good question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to join me in, as I read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. The other Gospels, for whatever reason, do not contain this particular moment, but Luke, as he seeks to set forth who Jesus is and what Jesus does, for good reason, includes this particular episode. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and His disciples and a great crowd went with Him. As He drew near to the gate of the town, behold, look! A man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, 
I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you that you have not left us groping in the dark, but that you have revealed who you are, what you say, what you do in Jesus. And we thank you that you not only give us your word, but you also give us your spirit. And we pray again that you would that you would open the eyes of our hearts in order that we might see who Jesus is, and in seeing who He is, we might love Him, and in loving Him, we might follow Him all of our days. You give grace to the humble, and that's the posture we wish to take. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. In the text, first of all, we find a dramatic meeting in verses 11 and 12. And secondly, we find a restoring movement in verses 13 through 15. And finally, we see this all-defining moment in verses 16 and 17. Let's consider these in turn. First of all, verses 11 and 12, a dramatic meeting. Verse 11, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and His disciples and a great crowd went with Him. Jesus is leading a great crowd on a day of great gladness. Early in the morning, the day began in Capernaum. It's about 25 miles away, and so by this time, it's a day's journey, and it's about evening time. And by this time, Jesus had chosen His 12 disciples. He has fed the 5,000. He has cast out a demon. He has healed a paralytic. He has healed the centurion's servant, and now he comes to the little town of Nain. The word means pleasant. But today, what's happening in this little town is anything but pleasant. On the one hand, Jesus is entering into the city. But on the other hand, a woman leads a crowd on this great day of sadness. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, 
and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. A young man has died, the only son of a widow, likely that day because it was the Jewish practice to complete the burial before sundown. And so earlier that day, the body is prepared, anointed with spices to prevent decay, and the mother sits and mourns. I don't know if you've ever heard a sound like that, but earlier in my pastoral ministry, I remember sitting in the living room of a woman's home who had lost her only son. And it is a sad, sad sound. It's the sound in Nain. The word spreads. The crowd gathers. The body is wrapped, placed in an open casket, carried on a plank, and the procession begins, beginning at the home and into the streets and to the gate and through the gate and to the grave. And she's been there before. She's lost her husband, and now she's lost her only son. And in that particular day, mourners and instrument players would be hired so as to give the freedom for a woman in her grief like this room not to be embarrassed, but to grieve freely. So step inside the story and feel the difference. Jesus leading this crowd on a day of great gladness and a woman leading her crowd on a day of great sadness. And step back and grasp the encounter, freeze the frame, and take a good look. Jesus and His crowd are walking into the city. The woman and her crowd are walking out of the city. Jesus and His crowd are moving from east to west. The woman and her crowd are moving from west to east. It's the end of the day, and the sun is setting, and the sunlight is highlighting the face of our Lord Jesus. And as for the woman, the sunlight is silhouetting her face in her grief. Can you see it? It's a dramatic meeting. The two crowds eventually meet. The Savior and this sufferer come face to face. Can you see it in your mind's eye? Ask yourself this all-important question. Has Jesus met his match? Will death get final say, or is everything sad going to come untrue? We need to wrestle with this question, because in this world, 
we will all, in different sorts of ways, experience loss. And we have very good reasons to grieve. But the text sets forth even better reasons to grieve in hope. You see, this woman is the perfect picture of the kind of person to whom the gospel comes. Read the gospels and you will find that the gospel does not come to the powerful. The gospel offends the powerful. They're not a needy people. They don't need free, sovereign grace. But the needy do. And the weak know they need this. Can you identify? Do you understand yourself to be utterly poor before God? Poor in spirit. Like this woman... then you are exactly the kind of person that Jesus is looking for. This is the dramatic meeting. Notice, secondly, the restoring movement. In verses 13 through 15, the text says, the Lord. It's the first time in Luke's gospel that the term is used, the Greek word kyrios, is translating here the Hebrew name for God, Adonai. Luke is especially concerned to reveal Jesus as the Lord of glory. And notice the restoring movement. First, it originates with the eyes. The Lord saw her. What did he see? He saw a woman bereft of hope, without husband, without son, and in her day that would mean alone and without protection and without provision. She is facing a hostile world. This is a very painful loss. That's what he sees. The Old Testament uses the figure of mourning over the death of an only son as a sign of the painful loss. For example, the horrific loss as a result of the Babylonian invasion against Judah, the southern kingdom. Jeremiah the prophet writes in chapter 6, mourn with bitter wailing as for an only son, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. Or, for example, the horrific loss as the result of the Assyrian invasion against the northern kingdom, Israel. Amos chapter 8, I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. This is the kind of person that Jesus sees. It's a restoring movement and it begins with the eyes. He's not checking his watch. He sees. He's dialed in. He's paying attention. It originates with the eyes. It escalates in the heart. Secondly, 
Did you notice? When the Lord saw her, He had compassion for her. He had compassion for her. It's at the very center of the story. In biblical narrative, literary conventions are used to highlight a writer's prominent concern. And this particular phrase is at the very center of the story. Compassion. Paul Miller comments in defining what it means. It's primarily a movement of heart, a movement towards someone. The heart goes out to someone, so much so that it's as though your whole being is entering into that person's world. It's the word from which we get the idea of gut-wrenching. It's physical, not simply emotional, as it moves toward the person. The great Princeton theologian and Presbyterian, B.B. Warfield, did a fascinating study in his day as he wrote a little booklet called The Emotional Life of Our Lord Jesus. And in that book, he surveys the Gospels and has a keen interest in the emotional life of our Lord Jesus, the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you read through the Gospels and you learn about the anger of Jesus and you read about the joy of Jesus and you read about the distress of Jesus and the sorrow of Jesus. But by far, Warfield finds that the word most frequently used to describe the emotional life of our Lord Jesus is compassion. For example, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, Mark 6. Or Luke chapter 10, unlike the priest and the Levi who walked by the man who was injured by robbers, a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where the injured man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. This good Samaritan pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the good Samaritan. Or as Wayne alluded to earlier from Luke chapter 15, the wayward son got up and returned to his father, but the text reads in Luke chapter 15, while he was still a long way away, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. There's orthodoxy, right thinking, believing the right things. There's orthopraxy, right living, doing the right things. But do we give equal attention to orthopathos, 
as revealed in our Lord Jesus. On display in the humanity of Jesus is what it means to be truly human, right feeling about the right things. Jesus embodies what it means to be a person, a human being. And so to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus is to be growing in all three of these aspects. By the way, I'm looking forward to next Sunday as we kick off a Sunday school class on caring for one another. You could never hire enough pastors, elect enough elders and deacons to care for the needs within the body of Christ, which is why the New Testament is filled with 50 plus one another commands because Jesus intends to deliver His care through the body, through every member. And wouldn't it be wonderful if Harvest Church continued to excel still more by the power of the Holy Spirit being transformed and growing into the very likeness of Jesus who when He sees a person in need, He has compassion. What a wonderful heart. This restoring movement originates with the eyes. It escalates in the heart, compassion. But thirdly, it culminates in words and deeds. First, to the woman, do not weep. He's not asking her to stuff her sorrow. But in this word, he's showing his tender care, and he just may be hinting at the reason behind the words he's saying. I'm going to do something for you. To the bearers, he came up and he touched the beer. To touch the dead was to become ceremonially unclean. But Jesus breaks the barriers. For this woman's sake, He's willing to identify with the ceremonially unclean. For her sake. You see, Jesus is always moving toward you. And He'll go to whatever length He must to help you. To the young man, He says, young man, I say to you, arise. And it's not an empty word, is it? It's like the word God speaks in Genesis chapter 1. A creative word, a powerful word, a word that simply does not describe a situation, but actually brings into being the very situation it describes. Power. All toward the goal of restoration, 
Jesus gave him back to his mother. And it's worth pausing and letting this get traction. This is who Jesus is. Yes, there's a display here of sovereign power. But His sovereign power is never exercised in an impersonal, detached sort of way. The text teaches us that His very person comes with His power. He Himself enters into your deepest fear, your worst nightmare, your very painful loss. He enters into it. He's with you. And how do we connect the riches of Jesus' compassion to the realities of our suffering? Former pastor and now commentator and teacher, Kent Hughes writes, Jesus has a heart that is big enough for our sorrows. You may have such an immense hurt that you cannot voice it. Perhaps your trauma has left you inarticulate. But He understands completely and sympathetically. And we might add that unlike sinners like us, even with the Spirit's help exercising compassion in well-meaning ways, albeit limited and imperfect ways, Jesus, our sinless Lord Jesus, has compassion that is unhindered and His heart goes out to you. So look at who He is for you. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Because of the Lord's great love for us, We are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning, Jeremiah the prophet tells us. So we look at who He is, and we trust what He says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace in order that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We come near to Him. We appeal to His heart. We talk to Him. We have an honest conversation. This is what I'm facing. This is how I'm hurting. But this is who you are, and I'm appealing. I've listened carefully to what you've said, and I'm taking you up on your word. I'm a person who has listened, and now I'm speaking to the person who has first spoken. Maybe you're here tonight, and you're exploring Christianity. I just absolutely love that. When someone like you, who is willing to take a risk and explore, come and see. And here you are, and... Maybe you're asking questions like, who is He? And I want you to see how radically different this this kind of help is. Jesus appeals to you saying, don't look inside yourself for resources. Come to me. 
I will help you. We need someone from the outside to do this work of comfort on the inside. So there's this dramatic meeting, and there's this restoring movement, and finally the text concludes with a defining moment in verses 16 and 17. Fear seized them all. They know themselves to be in the presence of the holy. They stand as if to say, this is shock and awe. And they're not quite sure who to look at. Do they look at the risen boy? To the elated woman? To this almighty Jesus? I suppose I have permission to tell you one little story since Pastor Dale told his story last Sunday about the home run that was hit in a very important inning out there in L.A. Can I say this? I think you know that I'm from North Carolina. We love our basketball in North Carolina. I grew up in Chapel Hill. I'm a big Carolina fan. Seven miles down the road is Duke University. By the way, we told our sons, sons, we just got two requirements for you. When you're seeking the Lord's guidance for a wife, she must be a Christian, and she cannot be a Duke fan. Okay? So I was, I was 11 years old. It was March 1974, and uh, we're playing in Carmichael Auditorium, and there's 17 seconds left in the game, and Carolina is down eight points, and this is before there was a three-point line. And my mom says to my dad, Ed, let's, let's leave. This, this game's over. And my dad says to my mom, no, Ginger, we're going to stay. And I'm standing right between, thinking they might get into a little tuffle. But we stayed, and would you believe, my Tar Heels came back in unbelievable fashion and won the game, down eight points, 17 seconds. You can Google it, 17 seconds, eight points down, UNC Duke. you got to see it. I've never seen anything like it. Fear seized us all. And notice how, how, how the fear turns into praise. They glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited His people. It's God's visitation. It's not a social visit. It's a saving visit. The day when God comes near to rescue His people. A visit that in the first place recalls God's rescue in the past. Through Moses, when God rescued His people from death in Egypt, and Moses demonstrated by miraculous signs that He was sent by God, and then the people knew that God had seen their affliction and visited His people, and they bowed their heads in worship, Exodus 4. But here, they're speaking of, they're making a connection between this moment and 1 Kings chapter 17, God's rescue through the prophet Elijah. Maybe you remember the story. As Elijah comes to a small town in Zarephath, so Jesus comes to the small town of Nain. As Jesus comes to Nain 
it brings back this, this, this memory of Elijah coming to the little town of Zarephath. And as Elijah meets a widow of Zarephath at the gate, so Jesus meets the widow of Nain at the gate. And as the widow of Zarephath is grieving the death of her only son, so the widow of Nain is grieving the death of her only son. And as the dead son was raised through the ministry of Elijah, so the dead son was raised through the ministry of Jesus. And as Elijah gave back the son to his mother, so Jesus gives back this son to his mother. And so they're making the connections, and they rightly conclude, a great prophet has arisen among us. But despite all of the parallels, there's one major difference. Elijah had to break a sweat. Do you remember the story? He took the boy up to the upper room, and three times he stretched his body out upon the boy and cried to the Lord three times, O Lord my God, let this child's life come to him again. That was Elijah breaking the sweat. But Jesus, he merely speaks the word. Elijah had to cry out to the Lord who can raise the dead, but Jesus is the Lord to whom Elijah cried out. Jesus is the Lord who does raise the dead. Jesus is the Lord come in the flesh, and Jesus is the Lord who is fulfilling His mission. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. A few verses later, if we were to continue on in Luke chapter 7, we would find the disciples of John coming to Jesus saying, John's a little concerned. Are you the Messiah or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind see. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have the good news preached to them. It's a visit that recalls God's rescue in the past. And finally, it's a visit that previews God's rescue in the future. This resurrection of this only Son is a sign pointing well beyond itself to the greater resurrection of Mary's only Son, of the Father's only begotten Son, this is the story of a man being resurrected, as Tim Keller likes to say, back into this sad world. But this story points to the day when we will be resurrected, not back into this sad world, but forward into a whole new world where everything sad comes untrue. How can this be? Well, because he touched the buyer. It's a union of great significance. A great exchange is going to take place in the gospel. 
It's as though Jesus is saying in touching the bier, I will come under the destructive power of death so that you may come under the indestructible power of resurrection. And we know that on Friday Jesus was given over to death, but on Sunday God raised him from the dead. And God has established this bond between the great shepherd and his sheep. And as go the shepherd, so go the sheep. And so he says to us, Arise. In the gospel, he says, Arise. And the New Testament teaches us that our resurrection in union with the risen Jesus is a single event, but it unfolds in stages. There's a beginning. You have been raised with Christ. God has made us alive together with Christ, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. But there's a middle. You are being raised with Christ. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 speaks of the giving of life to our mortal bodies through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. There's a middle. But there's also a glorious end. You will be raised with Christ. He will transform our lowly body, to be like His glorious body, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. And we close with the report that spreads. Might we be among those who spread the news? Through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country, is everything sad going to come untrue? Yes. In Jesus, everything said has come true, is coming true, will come true. Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth, John writes. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This evening we have the opportunity not only to hear the good news preached in this way, but also the opportunity to participate in the Lord's Supper where the good news is proclaimed visibly to all of you who believe. And so I'd like to invite the elders who are assisting 
to come forward as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper. And as they come, I'd like to remind us from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 what this meal is all about. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The Lord's Supper instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ, not merely as a memorial, but as a means of grace for those participating in this meal by faith are lifted up into the presence of Jesus by the Spirit as we have fellowship with Him and feed upon Him by faith. A family meal, meaning if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, and have been admitted into some branch of Christ's church that preaches this gospel, we welcome you into the table. Come. And you say, but I'm not worthy. No. For those of us who profess faith in Christ and are, with God's help, seeking to turn from our sin sincerely with genuineness, the table is for you to strengthen your faith. So come. If you know yourself not to be a Christian, but again, maybe you're here exploring, good for you. The application tonight for you is not to participate in the table, but to ask questions. And we would love to have that conversation with you to, to talk about the significance of what's happening at the table. We would love to have that conversation with you. But let the elements pass if you've not yet professed faith in Christ and have not been admitted into some branch of His church. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank You for this opportunity to feed upon Christ by faith. And that's what we pray, that your Spirit would set apart these elements and work through them as a means of grace to feed our soul, to strengthen our hearts. And this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples as I ministering in Christ's name distribute this bread to you. And Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Take, eat, 
Do this in remembrance of me. The elders will come forward and uh, distribute the elements. Let's wait until we've all been served before we partake and we'll sing together the hymn printed inside your bulletin.
Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. Same night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup, and after he had given thanks, as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, and Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Again, I'll ask that we all wait until we've all been served. And then we'll drink together and uh, we'll sing uh, What Wondrous Love Is This Together as we sit together.
Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Our Father, we thank you for the sacrament by which you strengthen us. Our Lord Jesus, we're grateful that you came under the curse in order that we might come under the Father's blessing. That you would be willing to lose your life in order that we might gain life forever. And we give you our praise. You are a full and overflowing fountain of grace and you are so rich and full of compassion. Thank you for enabling us to be the recipients of such and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Momentarily, we will take our benevolent offering, but as we uh, prepare for that, let me give us the benediction from the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 13. Please stand with me. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep. May he equip you with everything good to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus, to whom belongs glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's conclude our worship singing, may the peace of God, and we'll take our closing offering.